Hello folks, how are we doing? Um, for many of us, we're kind of getting settled again in, in our routines, preparing for a upcoming season and a long preparation period. And on that note, I thought the topic of strength and conditioning would be a really good place to jump onto for many reasons. You know, the last few episodes we've talked about strength and conditioning in bits and pieces through event specialized coaches. And I thought, why not get a practitioner who specializes in this exact area? Coach Matt Clark has worked at the University of Arkansas, a very prestigious institution uh, for quite a number of years now. He started out as a decathlete, a very good one at that, and has made himself into a very well-known individual on the NCAA scene. And what I found in my experience in America is that you have very few track strength coaches that I know of with a track and field background. And not only that, he is the unique kind of situation where he's been working with the track coaches there at the University of Arkansas for quite some time, even before he got to Fayetteville. So he's got an established relationship and he definitely was at the perfect point to kind of give his insight on what has made the program successful and how they can intertwine strength and conditioning, which is, of course, a popular aspect of training nowadays and how it complements or potentially does not complement the work on the track. And I have to say, through having this conversation with Matt, I was really able to pick up a lot of insight on how strength and conditioning can benefit each athlete and essentially, you know, where the common pitfalls tend to be. He really breaks down everything from technical development and, you know, managing chaotic situations when it comes to in-season um, effects and so forth. So I was very happy to get uh, Mr. Track Strength, as he is known on, on Instagram, on the show to just chat with all of his experiences and, and what he's accumulated over the years to deliver to you what I think is a very well-rounded episode in terms of um, knowledge on SNC. So I'm very excited for you to listen to it. I have to thank the sponsors of the podcast, as always, trackbarn.com. Uh, if you want to use my promo code for any purchases online, whether it's spikes as you're getting ready to train uh, on track or it is apparel, they have pretty much everything there you could want on their website. So you can use promo code TNF10 for a site-wide discount. And um, yeah, guys, I, I really hope you enjoy this one because I tell you what, I got lost in this conversation big time. And I have to thank Coach Matt Clark for being so willing to participate and give all of his expertise. Matt Clark, coach of the University of Arkansas, specializing in strength and conditioning. Um, thank you so much for joining me this evening here in Ireland, afternoon in Arkansas. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for the invite. I'm glad to glad to be here. And you have a very interesting background that I've kind of been sifting through over the last few days and um, even just, you know, casually on Instagram as one of the great parts about social media is that you'll bump into people that have interesting backgrounds and, and of course, um, passions for things that are similar to yourself. Um, I want to know a little bit about how you wound up as the strength and conditioning coach in Arkansas, because if I'm not mistaken, you're a decathlete and have kind of been in the sport for quite some time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, 
I guess I'll take it back about two decades to give you a little background. I, I was a middle distance high jumper in high school, and uh, that's ultimately what my, my college coach, I kind of saw that, I, I, those results and recruited me to be a decathlete in college. So, I, yeah, it's, it's, I, I went to University of Northern Iowa to be a decathlete. Um, I trained under Coach Geffert while I was there, and then I really fell in love with the uh, with the sport. I did dabble in it during the summers when I was younger. I I ran a lot of 800s during the track season, and I liked I liked the jumps and learning how to do the throws and everything. So I kind of coached myself in the summers in that, and I I you know I was originally um, looked at as a middle distance cross country runner, um, and I just didn't have any interest because it was not enough variation for me. I really kind of learned to love the decathlon because there was always something new to train for. Um, you're never really quite satisfied. You stay hungry because you never really have that perfect performance where you PR and everything. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I ended up being a decathlete in college. I, I, I ended up making the world junior team summer after my freshman year, um, 2006. I got to go compete in Beijing as a part of Team USA. Um, that was two years out from the 2008 Olympics, which were also in Beijing. Um, so I got to, you know, go see the the bird's nest before it was open, and uh, it kind of, to me, reinforced that not just my my passion for the sport was something that was real, but that uh, it was something worth pursuing because I was competing at a at a pretty high level. Um, so yeah, just kind of dug dug my heels in and, and really I. Uh, I uh, got into the decathlon, ended up being uh, uh, an All-American a few times in the heptathlon, decathlon, and uh, competed at the U.S. Championships and uh, one time at the Olympic Trials uh, when I was in college. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my the brief overview of my <laughs> history as a decathlete. Uh, when I was out of college, my senior year was, was 2009, so in 2010, uh, my score from the previous year was in the qualifying window for, for 2010, so I knew I was already going to be in the meet, so I continued training for that 2010 season. I went back to the U.S. Championships, um, you know, got selected for the Thorpe Cup team to go compete in Germany, and I uh, decided at that point that I wanted to keep, you know, really dig in and, and uh, see what I could do at the 2012 Olympic Trials. But at that point, uh, the coaches that I had in college had all been hired to come down to Arkansas. And so they were the new staff down here. And I figured if I was going to make this two-year run for the 2012 Olympic trials, uh, I wanted to move somewhere where uh, I, was, I knew the coaches. Um, I had maybe some, some better resources and facilities. I didn't have to run in the snow in the winter. <laughs> and a uh, big one was I just... You know, in, in Iowa, uh, you're limited because of the weather. So uh, I didn't like walking to class in negative 43 degrees, which happened, and that was the day I decided I was leaving. Uh, so yeah, uh, fast forward to January of 2011, I packed up my my car and drove to Fayetteville, found an apartment, and I uh, signed on as a volunteer coach with the team so that I could train with them. And I did that for about a year and a half, just trained alongside uh, the decathletes that were on the team and helped out with uh, some of the, you know, filming and just helping Coach Geffert mostly with 
uh, some volunteer duties. So then uh, after that, uh, you know, I needed to make some money. <laughs> so I kind of went outside of the track world for a few years, uh, worked in uh, just as a retail uh, nutrition store manager, personal trainer, and uh, kind of went a different direction for a few years. And then an opportunity opened up to uh, uh, be the strength and conditioning coach for the track team here. And uh, I was approached about that. And it was a, not only was it, it, did it sound exciting, but it was an opportunity after three years away for me to kind of step back into the track world, um, which I, which I very much missed at the time. Um, so I uh, took advantage of that. And then in the fall of 2014, I, joined staff as the strength coach for uh, started out just the men's track and cross country and then uh, we had a lot of a lot of success those first two years and uh, then in 2017 it expanded to take over the women's side so since then uh, i've been the the head over uh, men's and women's track and cross country here so yeah it, it, it wasn't something that i really i uh, pursued it's kind of a unique situation where I didn't come up through the strength and conditioning field as an intern or a volunteer or a graduate assistant I was just I was always in the area I still work out at the track uh, I still had good relationships with the coaches and they knew that I was still kind of in that realm I was a personal trainer they saw me working out at the track a lot and uh, uh, I definitely it was a learning curve once I started I didn't know everything I needed to know and still don't but I I, I kind of had to learn learn the job um, a lot of the logistics of it on the fly but uh, it was an opportunity that I wanted to take advantage of you you do have a unique background in the sense that like I haven't seen many former athletes work specifically in strength and conditioning with just track and so the main reason I wanted to get you on here and, and what will <laughs> spend the bulk of the time discussing is just what you've learned about i guess prescribing uh strength and conditioning for the various event groups the purpose of it and i suppose a good starting point for that is to to ask you in general like your philosophy when you think about strength and conditioning for track and field athletes and of course this varies um depending on its complexity and the uh, the event demands and stuff but what do you think overall is the purpose of like strength and conditioning for track athletes well i think there's uh there's a couple a uh, couple directions with that i uh, there's indirect and there's direct benefits of what we're doing in the weight room so i think one of, some of the direct benefits are that you know when you in, increase strength and power in the weight room uh, you're, you can directly improve your sport by just increasing your capacity to apply force under uh, uh, time constraints. And if you can do that within the confines of the technique of your event, then um, you're likely to improve. Um, I tell everybody at the beginning of the year just to take a, a little bit of a reductionist approach to what we're doing. We're trying to apply high amounts of force, apply it in a short amount of time, and apply it in the right direction. If we can do that against uh, uh, a frame that uh, uh, is relatively minimal, then we're going to get we're going to get faster, and uh, uh, things will be good. Uh, mm. But then I think there's also some indirect benefits of of what we're trying to do, um, which one of those would be injury resistance. Uh, when you expose your your body to to 
increased loads um, safely. Uh, your body adapts, your uh, tissue thickens, you're, you're less likely to get some of those uh, stress reaction and stress fracture injuries. You're less likely to have uh, uh, soft tissue injuries. And I'm thinking maybe uh, patella tendon and Achilles tendon uh, injuries that can be some of those chronic overuse issues that pop up. So we're, we're trying to create resiliency by exposing the body um, to a stimulus that it has to adapt to. Um, so it's kind of improving performance indirectly because you can handle the intensity and the volume of whatever you're doing for your specific event training without breaking down um, a little bit a little bit more efficiently. But then directly, obviously, there's the force and the time components um, where we're trying to just teach your body to apply more force in a short amount of time and then do it against the backdrop of your technical training so it's it's expressed efficiently yeah and i suppose like where the difficulties kind of come in terms of what makes great strength training or or someone who can do it at a very high level is of course um lining it up as you say with what the coach's uh prescription is for the other you know more specific elements and and that's something we'll definitely get into later but i liked even just how you, I would have always thought, and this is just off my limited knowledge, is that, you know, you'd almost see injury prevention as a direct benefit. But I suppose it is indirect that, you know, you're not just playing around in the gym for hours on end to to prevent injury. Like it's it's more of a byproduct, isn't it, more than anything? Yeah, and I guess it, it you could think of it as, as direct too. I've always just kind of arranged it in my head that way. I because it's easy to understand if we think of something direct, like if you possess this quality, you will move your body faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, things that are indirect are if, if you possess this quality, it may not move you faster um, uh, at the time, but it will set you up to handle training that will down the road. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I kind of arranged it in, in my head. Um, but however you arrange it, I don't think it belittles the value of it at all so <laughs> sure and i suppose given the direct benefits that you've outlined there is it fair to say that in essence strength training is more beneficial to those where force is a bigger demand within the event i.e if throwers are you know having to generate power at low velocities compared to sprinters then the uh, the return on investment is potentially more than and then you're the opposite end of the spectrum might be distance runners, you know, completely. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think specifically with, with distance running, I think that's, uh, that's something that kind of gets lost in the, in the conversation is the actual value of, of real strength and even power training for them. I, uh, I think the, one of the main differences is, and obviously in the upper body contribution to, uh, to the demands of the sport, um, but uh, also with the, the effect that size, just body size has on, on the event. Um, obviously, it's a lot more important for a distance runner to, to <clears throat> be able to manage the, the weight component. But for a thrower who's throwing an external element, um, that size is beneficial. But strength is valuable for both of them. Uh, you know, with uh, distance running... And as well as with, with sprinting, we want to keep a relatively small frame. I think with, with sprinting, uh, the magnitude of that frame is a little bit, it, it can be a little bit bigger and still be efficient at mm -hmm. applying to the ground um, in a way that improves your event than with distance running. But uh, 
with distance running as, as strength and power improve, you change, uh, you, you kind of rewire your nervous system um, in a similar way that it would a sprinter and you, you increase your recruitment of available muscle fibers that, that can now do work when you become um, more efficient at, re at uh, calling some of those high threshold motor units into action. So you can, you can improve strength without putting on body weight that way and it can improve a distance runner's performance. Uh, obviously there's a risk management <laughs> there uh, uh, between the events. There's some risks that throwers might be willing to take um, that a distance runner, um, you know, if you only have them twice a week for 30 minutes, um, technical efficiency is gonna uh, matter a lot in, in your, your programming. Um, but I think if you can teach technique, um, on some of those best bang for your buck movements uh, to distance runners, um, it still has it still provides a lot of value in their uh, in their training and performance. So there's definitely you know differences between the events, but I wouldn't say that a distance runner strength isn't important for them. Mm -hmm. Is it still it still isn't? It's a, it's an element that they're not training uh, generally with their with their normal uh, course of, of running, whether it's uh, their morning runs or their actual workouts on the track. Um, it can help fill in some gaps and just uh, call into action some tissue that normally doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. And I suppose some of the other coaches who aren't perhaps um, as well educated on, let's say, strength and conditioning and, and generally how to maybe avoid some of that um muscle mass gain in general do you have any kind of protocols or schemes that you stick to in order to ensure that that doesn't happen or is it just um more of outside factors that generally plays into that as well well there's a lot of room for for case by case um examination but i think in general and this is applicable in the kind of that that uh jumper sprinter world as well as with distance uh I like to keep the volume a little bit higher when uh, when we're starting out and and learning movements. Um, I'll uh, I'll emphasize eccentric, the eccentric component of the movement, and pause at at positions like the bottom or maybe somewhere in the middle, um, somewhere where they're uncomfortable, so we get comfortable being in positions that are usually where they would fail or usually try to avoid. Mm -hmm. So, by getting efficient in those positions, I. Uh, when the weight is light and the volume is a little bit higher, you're really not creating the stimulus to grow. Um, so what I tr try to do is just optimize our uh, technical training. And then as they're able to, we bump the weight up and drop the volume. So even for distance runners, we might be doing sets of two or three on some of our main movements that are relatively heavy. And I say relative because it's, you know, it's the weight is dependent on their ability. Um, so I don't have them train beyond their capacity, but whatever their, wherever their ability lies, uh, we'll keep the volume relatively low, assuming that we've learned technique. Um, and as long as uh, the volume stays low, you're not really creating the stimulus to grow. Mm. Um, it's when you actually, I think, I've gotten this question a number of times, you've probably heard it, you know, someone comes up, what do you do for cross country? Is a bunch of uh, you know, low rate, low weight, high rep training. And uh, I think that can be a, a decent learning environment um, to, to get a little bit more 
to get more reps in order to practice something um, to, re to, to the point where it becomes second nature. Uh, but as you increase weight, you have to drop the volume. Otherwise, you end up doing kind of moderately high weight for high volume. And that's actually the recipe for how to grow a muscle. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, so as if you're going to increase the weight, you actually have to drop the volume um, so that you're targeting the neurological changes that you're after, um, which is motor unit recruitment uh, to help with force application. Um, or you end up, you know, leaving the weight low, keeping the volume high. And then uh, if you try to add reps to that, you can start to interfere with their recovery from the other mm. <laughs> high volume work that they're doing on the track or on the road. And so I've, I've tried to view it for, uh, for those, for the distance athletes as not just another round of the same energy system training that they just did on the track. Mm. Uh, we're trying to fill in some gaps and provide, uh, you know, just a different avenue <laughs> for how to use some uh, uh, call into action uh, muscle fiber that normally isn't used. That's a great explanation. And I suppose it kind of goes in line with why you would prescribe plyometric training. We, mm -hmm. same way, are trying to utilize things in a different way that, you know, they're not, the contacts essentially <laughs> are not mm -hmm. the same as their six minute record or six mile recovery run or whatever it's right it's a much more responsive type of um elastic energy that they're using or or that they're again um kind of the rate in which it's firing is, is much mm -hmm. faster and and so forth and be able to tap into that i'd imagine is going to be helpful when they're trying to kick and various other situations that they might find themselves in in the endurance events yeah, absolutely. Uh, and maybe this is going down a little bit more of the the distance side than we had planned on, but it's a it's a question that I've answered a lot lately with with cross country yeah. kind of starting, uh, and uh, and and definitely. And I've had you know the way I've explained it is the people that have the best PRs are are often not the same ones that win championship races. Um, so you have to get efficient at you know executing your race in championship situations. But if you can't kick, then you're not going to win. Um, mm -hmm. And being able to call on those high threshold motor units, be able to call on uh, more, <clears throat> a larger pool of muscle fibers is going to help create that kick. Has other benefits as well, but that's one of the best ones is that now you've got another gear that you can hit because you spent time uh, training some of those faster twitch fibers. And that's that's uh, a benefit of, of biometrics and really any kind of elastic training um, is that it selectively targets those high threshold ones you kind of bypass the slower twitch <laughs> uh, training that that might get called into action when you're doing heavier lifting you kind of just selectively target type 2 fibers and, and teach them how to apply force quickly i think you've kind of added a lot of good information to a potential big misconception because as you said how the question is often approached is that like it's going to be high rep, low volume type stuff. And I'm not live for a long time. I kind of thought that myself, but even my last guest, Danny Mackey um, from the Brook Beast Track Club, he was kind of saying the same thing. He's like, no, I'm really trying to do a lot of the things that I get to do with the sprinters. And mm -hmm. um, that is because the the goal there is to pretty much, yeah, be able to tap into the ability to apply force and, and move through um, all the joint angles in a very fast 
sequence yeah. and and so forth so no it's good that's very valuable information i think for any distance coaches that are listening to this um one thing also that you mentioned that i thought was really interesting so and i could have misinterpreted but i'm going to ask it anyway when you're teaching um or when you're going through the teaching phase with these movements you you said that you're prioritizing or maybe even going into a lot of the eccentric and isometric components as well is that true yeah i it's I, I think uh strength coaches um one of the issues that i've that i've seen um kind of perpetrated in the field is is looking at how someone moves the first time and then saying oh he doesn't have the ability to do this movement so we're just going to scrap the movement um or modify the movement right away um and i think it's important if you, if you think a movement is valuable um it's going to train whatever quality you want but there's some sort of a barrier to doing it we kind of owe the athlete the ability to give them the opportunity to learn it and so um part of that process of learning is not just having them go full speed through it from the very beginning where there's a movement flaw um i like them to feel that i would like them getting the kind of the 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 fast automatic feedback um when they're when they're doing the movement so they can feel the difference between a good position and a uh uh, less than good position. <laughs> uh, and I think when they, when they learn the difference and, and they're, they're not just kind of all, always listening to the coach, giving them feedback, uh, they can kind of auto correct. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, they start getting comfortable in positions that they wanted to avoid. You start using those movements as tools themselves to develop the mobility to get into the right positions. And so where I think a lot of people stop is, uh, they see a mobility restriction or a motor control issue, and all of a sudden that movement gets scrapped or modified right away. Um, and I like to continue to, to if, if I think it's a good movement that is going to train a quality we want, especially if they're only like 18 years old, you know, and I'm just for the next four years, I've told them they can't do this. Um, I want to try to help them learn how to do it. And most of the time we can learn how to do it. And eventually we may get to a point where. I'll scrap it or modify it if I really need to. And, you know, the, the risk is not worth the reward. But my starting point isn't, you know, repeal and replace. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, give them the opportunity to learn it first. Um, and I found with uh, uh, when you slow down the eccentric component of a movement, um, there, are t- there are changes that happen at the tissue level, uh, but also at, at the the neurological level, um, you come, you become familiar with every portion of the movement, and you end up learning how to brace and uh, and kind of protect your spine um, while you're doing it. You you end up, uh, you know, when we hold isometric pauses where they're normally uncomfortable, um, and I make them kind of hang out there. If something about the position is off and they're forced to hold it under lightweight conditions, uh, then they start to feel the difference in real time between a good position and a bad position and all of a sudden we've started grooving a path that's a little bit more efficient and now later down the line we can add load and add speed because they've gotten the mobility to get into the position they've Mm -hmm. got their control uh to control it through the full range of motion or whatever range of motion we're working on um and now we can start to add load so they can move through it safely and then eventually we want to add speed to it so that's kind of my my process and uh, when I get people in there for the first time is is really just watch them move under lightweight conditions, give them the opportunity to learn, um, and then coach them along the way. And then then when we need to, we'll, we'll uh, 
can talk about replacing if we need to. I've often said to people when I'm kind of talking about my squat, it's like, what <clears> drills <throat> did you do to learn the squat? And you know, what's funny is I, I really just squatted. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my mobility got better through squatting. And of course, I wasn't horrific in at the movement to begin with to the point where it was like there was going to be something really wrong if I did a body weight squat or a very light barbell squat. Um, my movement was okay, but it was far from ideal. But it's funny how just the repeated exposure to it allowed right. me to develop the mobility I needed to do it with more load. Right. And, and it's interesting because I think with any sport, uh, you see a concentration of body types that tend to be good, really good at, at a particular event or sport. And with track and specifically sprinters and jumpers, that typical elite build is uh, uh, long femurs, high hips, short torsos, and uh, mm-hmm. usually long arms too. And uh, it does just biomechanically, it, it makes the uh, a lot of the main movements look a little bit different than someone like me, who's more of a, you know, a weightlifter build, a longer torso, shorter limbs. Um, and so sometimes we, we put someone with that body type, the sprinter build into a squat and it looks, it just looks different <laughs> and you can't coach them the same way. But if you have that build combined with like really, really immobile ankles, it does create some problems because a squat is basically just going to look like a good morning. They just bend in half. You reach a mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. the knees can't go forward any longer, and they achieve depth by just rounding their back. Um, mm-hmm. and so, when I see things like that, I, the goal is now let's develop the ankle mobility. Uh, we might need to throw in some additional uh, correctives in order to address that specifically, but let's do it alongside actually learning the squat and so hopefully we can open up that that uh that ankle and improve the range of motion but then mm-hmm. load it so that you're getting strength through that range of motion so you don't mm-hmm. just expose yourself to more injuries through uh increased range of motion but no strength through it mm. um so yeah it's it's you, you see uh, a lot of similar builds um in those events at this level and and especially with the environment that most high schoolers are coming from, it's a lot of sitting down all day long, go home, sit down for longer. Uh, we get, you know, we get chronic tightness in certain areas and, and sometimes that shows itself when you're trying to do movements, but just, if you, if you practice the movement, just like anything else, <laughs> it can get better and, and then you can use it. I'm glad you touched on that. That's an interesting kind of nuance that you mentioned with the elite level build athletes and I've seen this myself those athletes struggling to squat Um, and one of the counter I guess arguments that coaches often have that maybe SNC don't meet eye to eye on is why would you improve their ankle range of motion if they're a naturally stiff elastic athlete Um, you don't want them to be mobile through that area do you have any like have you ever heard of that do you have any thoughts on it yeah um, yeah have you... definitely and i think there's there's uh there's some merit um to it for sure because that ankle stiffness improves your force transfer into the ground you want to be able to create the stiffness but if that stiffness is actually impeding the training then it can cause other issues so if, if for example they're they 
it kind of depends on what the stiffness is from. If you have a really tight Achilles, that might be a little bit of a different scenario than if, if you have just a kind of the, the bones of the ankle don't articulate the right way. You right. can be getting the stress on contact in a different area. <laughs> and, uh, depending on what it is, you might want to address it a little bit differently. But that's it's kind of touching on the point when, when we improve range of motion, we don't just want passive range of motion. We want strength through range of motion. So if somebody has a really stiff ankle and I can improve their range of motion and now I have this whole, this other pool of exercises that I can use to improve their performance directly and improve their resilience indirectly. And I can get strength through that range of motion where their stiffness isn't impacted. Then why wouldn't I try to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, They can still create that stiffness um, by, by, by improving strength through that new range of motion. Then they don't lose the ankle stiffness, but but we've got tools we can use to improve their their strength, their power, and their elastic strength um, that were previously unavailable. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely merit to it. I mean, that's a big part of, of efficient force transfer is being able to maintain. Yeah. But uh, I, I would say it might not be worth it if it's at the expense of some of the other important training tools you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's you bring in a good point there with the fact that like there is a difference between like having kind of a stiff Achilles and like if the ankle joints are jarring and mm-hmm. you certainly don't want that. And there's a lot of different probably routines that I've found ankle flossing to be really good when um, I've had some of those kind of locked up, um, I guess, joints there down and down between the foot and the and the lower leg so i think that's a very fair point with regards to like just like stretching alone might get rid of it and and you have to kind of see what the issue is first so are you um there's there's other issues that can come up too um you know there's there's achilles injuries that can come up because of chronic immobility at the ankle Mm -hmm. there's a uh there's other you know stress reaction stress fracture issues that can come up because of just poor function at the ankle um and so i think it's i'm not a fan of just trying to become hypermobile but just mobile enough to be able to do what we want to do efficiently and effectively Mm -hmm. um so no that's 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 really good and um i suppose a bit a big portion of what i wanted to talk about as well is is kind of like you mentioned in the beginning you work with over a hundred university track and field athletes but you also have a a, the university of arkansas a pretty big post-collegiate group Mm -hmm. is there a difference in your prescription generally speaking obviously there is an athlete to athlete difference i'd imagine um to what i guess extent you take strength and condition or better yet no i wouldn't even say extent because that sounds like it's going to be more extreme and in fact might be very much more simple um but yeah, is there is there kind of nuances there between the post collegiates because you've got a lot of talent, a lot of different frames that you work with um, in that setting. So interested to hear yeah. about that. So uh, there are some differences, but one of the things in in my position that I've had to realize is that I can't personal train all hundred people, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also want to make sure I'm I'm delivering uh, value to them. Um, that helps them improve. And so at the beginning of the year, there's constraints that are worked into the movements that that if you are new to the weight room, help you learn the movements. And if you're experienced, those same constraints uh, 
still help. You know, they still, it's kind of a technical reset every year. So at the beginning, someone who's new and someone who's, you know, an Olympic gold medalist, we still may be using some controlled eccentrics and, and pause work um, just because during the course of the season, uh, we may transition to more partial range of motion and then they get some some downtime after the season. So we come back in and we really want to establish that, that range of motion and control again. So there are things that will be worked into both groups, um, one to help reestablish what we've been away from and one uh, to really learn the movement. So the group that's that's learning the movements may be in that for a little bit longer. Um, that that uh, motor control can take a little bit longer to learn. The group that's that's experienced might be in that phase for less time um, as that uh, familiarity comes back. Um, but generally, if I, I see it as as I see it through their movement in the weight room. So even if someone is really good at their sport but moves really poorly and might be weak in the weight room, I'll just try to address what they're what they're weak in. And so I might have a freshman who's not as successful in their event who actually had some experience lifting in high school. Um, and then someone who's really good on the track uh, that doesn't have very much experience in the weight room. Uh, and so I wouldn't program based off of necessarily their ability on the track, at least not in the fall when I have the opportunity to teach them. Um, but again, that's that's a little bit more on that case-by-case -case basis. Um, the, the, I'd say the most challenging part is I can pretty reliably predict what the collegiate competitive season is going to look like throughout mm -hmm. the year. Um, the pros are all over the map as far as their schedule, <laughs> which prevents a new challenge every year. Um, there's some that are kind of on that in that upper echelon that uh, are on the Diamond League circuit, and even that uh, – they, uh, you know, their agent may want them to go to this meet and not that meet. And then there's ones who might not quite be on the Diamond League level, but they're doing some of the lower ones. Um, and so planning around that gets a lot more challenging uh, than anything else, because you, the last thing you want to do is really push intensity um, or just push some component that they haven't been pushing right when they're about to go into a big competition. So. I see. So yeah, I, I work those constraints in uh, at the beginning, um, and then just there's a lot of uh, adapting on the fly <laughs> as mm -hmm. the competitive schedule uh, kind of dictates with with the higher level athletes. So, is there any like when you say that it sounds like almost like you've learned a few lessons about that in the past? Like, has there been times <laughs> where you maybe on a on the drop of a dime kind of inserted something that was now, I won't say wrong, but like you realized, okay, like under these conditions, I probably won't do that again. But this is again, this could be just one individual athlete. It might work for another athlete, but yeah. Uh, and the more the longer you work with them, the, the more you see, you know, there's there's a few of the pros right now that that really thrive if they get a little dose of intensity right before a competition. They feel like they're kind of activated and 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 ready and then there's other ones that just feel fatigued <laughs> and so uh if i have an athlete where you know i didn't think they were competing on a particular weekend and maybe we came in for a thursday or friday lift and i gave them a dose of intensity and then they found out at the last minute that hey i'm, I'm actually getting on a flight and i'm going overseas to to do a meet uh in two days um or they just get into a meet here like the next day um 
sometimes I kind of bite my nails with <laughs> with uh, with their with anticipation of the performance, but that's where just communication uh, comes into play a lot. Uh, I I try my best to stay on top of everybody's schedules, have them send them to me so I can try to plan around them as best I can. But uh, I'd say the biggest concern just comes with the posterior chain training. And there's definitely a fine line uh, that you have to walk. Uh, mm. You know, the, as sprinters and jumpers, that posterior is very important as far as extending the hip, uh, maintaining uh, position at the knee and applying force to the ground. Uh, so we have to strengthen it, but if you also do like a heavy RDL session or a volume RDL session, uh, <laughs> and then you know that afternoon or the next day um, they have a uh, a jump day or a or a, a speed development day, then that can cause some issues. So that's one one component uh, that I really am careful with because it's it's not something you can ignore. You, you, we need to develop strength. Um, back there but it's also something that has to be timed the right way so mm -hmm. i'm pretty strategic with where i include things like uh rdls uh like a back extension um if we're going to do good mornings anything like that that really just kind of attacks the posterior you just have to be careful with that works in lovely to a number of things i wanted to ask you next and it kind of feeds into the eccentric stuff as well but i really have to pay attention to this kind of memory that came up on my mind and this was the first time i'd ever seen a strength and conditioning coach who had no experience in um track and field mind you he um he was prescribing weights for a bunch of track athletes who their track coach did not really know much about the weight room so he was assisting and he had put a max one a one rep max rdl the day before a speed endurance time trial um, a 120 time trial and i was now I think 1920, very little weight room experience, very little knowledge in general. But I just, for some reason, had a, a feeling in my gut that that was not a good idea. And I was just <laughs> like, you know, this probably shouldn't be done. But I, I didn't say it to anyone because I was like, what do I know? You know, he's the he's done the education on this. But funnily enough, two days later, it wasn't no, it was maybe a few more than two days later because he did the session and he got away OK. But then the that ran into a weekend and then the Monday he had went back out to do acceleration and he, and he tore his hamstring. And I was just like, I don't know how that like, you know, whole kind of concept didn't click with that strength coach. Cause clearly he knows enough about anatomy and physiology and of, of sprinting to say the hamstrings are really, really involved in this whole thing and going max on both is potentially <clears throat> conflicting um but yeah i suppose like this kind of bleeds into the communication aspect and how training aligns on the track and off the track and suppose one thing that i have seen and heard from coaches before is that during the early season eccentric training is prioritized a little bit more because um the the kind of intensities on the track with acceleration development etc are kind of lower and so you can kind of get away with more time under tension uh under the bar and stuff like that is is that kind of your thinking on that too and that's how you kind of reach agreements on that yeah and and different coaches have different fall training models i know there's there's kind of if you re reduce it down there's two kind of major schools of thought one one starts fast and then you you learn 
sprint technique and you add volume and the other one starts with a lot of volume and then you kind of mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. You drop volume. Um, so if, I, I think if you're a, a kind of starting with speed and increasing volume type of a program, you still have to watch that stuff a little bit more in the fall because you're starting with, with sprinting. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, like for example, right now um, our teams are doing uh, a couple days of slower intervals, short rest, slow intervals. So it's a little bit easier to sneak in some of that posterior training because if your hamstrings are a little bit sore, you're unlikely to get an acute injury from a 16 or 17 second pace <laughs> 100. Um, but I still generally plan something like an RDL or uh, the last lift of the week, whichever day that falls on, so that uh, we mm. can recover on the weekend and uh, and come back on Monday without feeling that uh, that delayed onset soreness as much. Um, but that's one thing that I kind of learned the hard way. Is I, I've had a lot of old hamstrings <laughs> when I was younger, just just by using myself as a guinea pig. There are a lot of years in, in high school and you know even after college, I uh, I just I liked taking the reins on on my lifting and I uh, you know I definitely put myself in scenarios where I couldn't you know I maybe planned a sprint or a jump day and I showed up and I couldn't do it because of what I had done in the weight room and I think it's it's really important for strength coaches to be as deeply tied into their sport program as they can um, being present at practice and and developing relationships with the coaches and with the athletes to see how they feel um, I think that's one of the things that maybe gives uh, sport coaches a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to strength coaches is a lot of times we we kind of obsess over the details of of a program but if that program is made in a vacuum and you're applying it on top of training that you are unaware of um, that's when you get those those kind of uh, dissonant <laughs> uh, a dissonant combination of sport and strength training it's not this this kind of this smooth seamless uh, combination of things that support each other it's uh, it's constant tension um, and and it I think rightfully so probably invokes a lot of distrust in the strength coach when when they're really focused on proving their value by making a program that looks good on paper but, but mm. causes issues in, in the actual sport yeah yeah i think that will not will get some nods when you know there's listeners um <laughs> playing this one but i think uh, particularly that last piece just with feeling like you have something to prove and, and showing off what you know and that's all well and good but it's like it's it's lining things up as you said in the very beginning and that's another thing that there's a few methods that i've heard over the years that kind of eccentric um training when the intensities of like let's say running is not as high or or let's even put it this way you might not do eccentric training when you're in a portion of the season where you're regularly running fly 20s or fly 30s you know um so it's kind of like particularly one coach um hakan anderson in sweden he has talked about like just the exposure to like nording hamstring curls he will not do that um beyond like the the gpp because he can kind of get away with it when resistance running is kind of the primary method Mm -hmm. of speed training and so forth so you kind of see how that like um risk is is mitigated somewhat but you're still kind of exploring the edges 
um, of the intensity of those kind of, um, I guess, those exercises, if you will, or those muscle groups is kind of, you know, everyone wants to be able to do Nordics and and do fly twenties and maybe even max power clean squat in a single week. But um, yeah. unless you've got some special <laughs> help, that's probably not going to happen. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but when you're looking at maybe some of those, I guess, middle of the fall sessions, you're starting to notch up the intensity with the speed work. Does your focus um, in the weight room start to match that? And, and what I mean by it is, like ray coatings and various other things where you're aligning lifts with the theme of the the actual track session is that something you do or do you think that's kind of i don't want to say overrated but let's just it sounds good right the idea of um the sequencing <laughs> of 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 how fast you're moving the weight should kind of be in congruence with the the theme of the day on the track and you know i've seen it done different ways but like i would like to get your take on that yeah that's that's kind of a it's an interesting subject that uh, I think a lot of people have very dogmatic views on. So, and it can be either direction. Um, so generally in the fall, um, you know, we'll start with our technical training and we do on our main strength movements. Um, we are dropping volume and adding weight. Um, and in a perfect world, we figure out all the technical components and you're always improving in your technique, but we have the requisite skill to be able to safely just, just add load week to week. Um, and then by the time we get to the end of the fall, when we're doing sets of, you know, two and three, some of that lower volume, uh, training, we push the weight up quite a bit. And then on our, uh, on our power-based movements, um, power cleans, hang cleans, you know, split jerks or snatched, uh, depending on on what the event group is, uh, we've pushed that up quite a bit and dropped the volume as well. What I try to do is match the demands a little bit earlier. So, like in, in December, we'll generally do what I call a transition cycle, where we'll we'll start introducing um, to certain events uh, more jumps, some modified plyometrics in in the weight room more med ball throws are incorporated into it um, i like starting that in the fall um, so that we've got a little bit of a base with some of those movements in season i think this is where it gets a little bit dicey is when you're always trying to match stimuli when you're in season so let's say you're uh, you're in a kind of the peak phase of your season and a jumper has flying 30s on the track and they've, they've got full approach work, they've got short approach um, actual jumps that they're doing. Um, the, the neurological demand for that type of training, I'm not sure is complemented very well by doing it again in the weight room. Um, so that, that gets kind of tricky because if, if, if uh, I know a certain event is doing uh, you know, had a plyometric day that day and I had planned on some form of plyometrics in the weight room, I need to be aware of what they did at practice because I don't need to give them a double dose of it. And so sometimes uh, you might not want to match the demands, you want to complement the demands. So if they have mm. something really high up on that uh, force velocity scale, more geared towards the velocity side of things, I might want to spend a little bit of time um, during that part of the season, kind of training the opposite side, just to give them a little bit of support, um, where we're not just always firing on all cylinders, um, as far as the central nervous system goes. Mm. And so, um, 
I think there's a time for it. I generally in include some of those things in our transition phase in December as we get ready to to start competing. And then some of that stuff I kind of reel back as as we get kind of into later January um, when they're competing a little bit more often and they're doing more of that stimulus on the track. But uh, there's there's definitely you know, there there are some athletes who can't handle it as well on the track they break down pretty quick so there's ways that you can incorporate it into the weight room to make up for maybe something that they're lagging on the track um have to you have to be present at practice and and able to see what's going on communicate with the coach and then implement the change mm -hmm. yeah i know I, I love that i think that makes a lot of sense with there's no hard and fast rule for whether you will or won't match it. It's just a case of like, if X person is only able to tolerate three flies and you know, you were, you were mm -hmm. hoping for five to really get a proper stimulus, then maybe you would go in and reinforce some of that stuff in the weight room. Cause it's, it's going, well, it's going to reinforce it. But then you say they got all five done and they're kind of running at very high, um, almost mm -hmm. PR level. Why, why go in and do more, more damage essentially, if you right. will. Um, so if you were to, let's say, aim towards more of the force end of the spectrum, they've got a good workout done. It's very high quality stuff, event specific. What kind of lift would you swap in there? Let's just, for an example. Like. I, I, I like uh, different iterations of contrast training, I think are valuable. So, um, you know, Simple approach is just something relatively heavy with something light and explosive. Uh, so something that I'll use a lot is like, a, you know, warm up to 80% on a trap bar deadlift. That's not, you know, if we're doing sets of maybe one or two on it, we kind of use it as activation um, for, for some of those higher threshold fibers. And then we immediately transition into something like a dumbbell squat jump or a box jump, depending on kind of where we want to place ourselves on the scale. Um, and then if it's a group that doesn't do plyos on the track, um, it could be something, you know, if we have the uh, skill set and the strength levels to do things like a depth jump, we might do depth jumps um, and pair them that way. Uh, but I like doing something a little bit heavier before because I think it kind of primes your nervous system to do the explosive stuff right after. Mm. Uh, just have to watch watch the volume on it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so things like that. I'd say trap trap bar with the jump. Um, I, I am a fan in season of, uh, I, I like developing full, as close to full range of motion as we can get, depending on an athlete's ability. So I'm not a guy that's going to say everybody needs to figure out how to squat, uh, all the way down. Our goal mm -hmm. is to get to parallel. Some people can get lower safely. Some people, they might not have the ankle mobility or the motor control to get there. We'll get where we can get and we'll try to improve it from there. Okay. I need to, we need to meet the athletes where they're at and take baby steps from there. Um, so we'll do that throughout the fall, but when we're in season, I like to, uh, limit the risk of, of what goes on at the bottom part of a squat. Um, and maybe the, the nervous system contribution to it by going on to a box squat where we'll stay slightly above parallel and, uh, we can really work on, uh, kind of that rate of force development from a static start with the box squat. And we'll, we'll go into something like a reactive quarter squat right afterwards, um, mm. We're being really, really reactive with it, uh, trying to absorb and reverse the force as quickly as we can. Um, mm -hmm. So 
high uh, high neurological demand, I suppose. But as far as range of motion goes, relatively low risk. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then with with uh, you know decathletes, I'd do something similar with uh, like a bench press and a speed bench, or bench press and a, a, a med ball chest pass, things mm-hmm. like that. So, um, but again, that's just kind of I write my programs, what I say in pencil, and reserve the right to <laughs> modify them uh, as I see fit. Um, so they might, you know, an athlete might only do that for one or two weeks out of a cycle. Um, anytime I do include that type of training, I, I don't really ever go for three consecutive weeks with it um, because I think it's it's uh, takes too long to recover from and ends up just chronically depressing the nervous system where mm-hmm. it becomes to hit the work that they need to do on the track and compete. So mm-hmm. uh, two weeks max on that type of stuff generally. <clears throat> so it's fair to say that you're not necessarily a proponent to eradicating strength training it albeit modified or or paired with a contrast of explosive movements um you still believe that emphasizing some sort of the max strength or force end of the velocity curve in in season is important under the right uh dosage or or not even dosage but within a decent window of time to where recovery is is possible yeah yeah definitely and i do think dosage is actually I think you had the right word there. <laughs> I, I, you know, if we spend all fall trying to to build uh, strength and power, you know, when you when you break it down, strength is a crucial component in power, and both of those qualities play into your um, your elastic strength, right? Um, which is an important quality for especially for a jumper. But mm-hmm. uh, if we spend a lot of time developing that quality and then we just abandon it in January, it shouldn't be a surprise when we get to May or June and, and power starts to go down because we've been ignoring kind of that strength side of the curve. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important to kind of to microdose it in there to, so that we can uh, at least maintain it. With some of the underdeveloped athletes, I think you can actually train it longer into the season um, and, and still get a good uh, performance benefit from it. Um, so I'd, I, I like doing very low like you know if we're going to do a set at 80 percent, that's a, that's a weight that um you know you could do for if you're we just going to go in there and do it uh you know comfortably six seven reps somewhere in there but what if i say we're going to do 80 percent for two you know it's not it's not going to crush you um but it does help us to maintain that quality that we that we've been trying to build all fall and then from that uh, from that quality, we can continue to build on on our power or whatever other quality you want to work on. Um, mm-hmm. So I've I've experienced it myself, and I've seen athletes, uh, other athletes experience it. In the name of staying safe, we ignore the strength component of performance, and then by the end of the season, um, they feel like uh, that loss of strength has reduced. Um, not only their ability to perform, but to recover. Um, so I think there's there's uh, definitely ways that you can tie it in safely um, and continue to, to use it as a tool to improve performance. That's lovely. Yeah, I think you've, you've mentioned a few key points there that sort of allow coaches to find what might be the sweet spot if, if there is such a thing. But um, 
you know, you don't always have to sit on one side of the fence or the other. And I'm not saying everyone does. I just think you've made a very good case for how you can maintain it. And I think most coaches want to maintain it. I don't think anyone would say, hey, I want my athletes to lose strength by May. Nobody wants that. They just maybe feel as though it's more attainable with, you know, including things like med ball throws for longer. But mm-hmm. I think... um it's, I mean, I've done some really weird stuff that never I never thought would make sense. Uh, for me, for uh, last year, I used to do a parallel squat max attempt um, two days before a competition. And that might sound wacky to some people, but it got me stimulated in a way that nothing else could. Mm-hmm. And I was just well, like... Or there's some people that that really... I've got... There's a high jumper that I work with that, that feels really good when he does like a heavy squat or clean session before he high jumps and I have other ones mm-hmm. that you know they feel they feel trashed if they do it mm-hmm. uh, and I'm kind of more along your lines I feel really good if I work work my way up to some heavy squats you know I feel like I'm I'm highly activated and I can go mm-hmm. run through a wall <laughs> yeah no that's you're spot on that's that's kind of how it felt honestly it's just like I feel very wired and, and coordinated which is like again people be like but would it not dampen the coordination? Because, you know, you're all over. It just depends, doesn't it? It really depends on who you're talking about. Yeah, and, and I think it's easy to overthink it. Sometimes you just have to pay attention to how they feel. <laughs> we can we can mm-hmm. dive into what's going on in the in the textbook, but sometimes uh, athlete feedback is, is more important. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think there's definitely – a lot of it just comes down to risk management. If if you can do it safely and you feel good, I think there, uh, it's it's – fine to include but uh if you're someone who maybe has come in with a lot of mobility restrictions and we spent a lot of time learning these movements um you might be trash just because of how hard you have to think and and really focus when you're doing some of these movements um it might be more of a psychological demand for you which can can impair your uh your training and and performance so mm-hmm. like i said you just kind of have to meet meet the athletes where they're at and in my role i can't personal train 100 people but I can kind of from a general template based on event, I can make modifications as I, as I see uh, circumstances mm-hmm. changing. Um, that just helps you mod- uh, manage the risk. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to ask someone who can't safely do a, a heavy squat to go do a max out squat right before mm-hmm. <laughs> an important competition. But. Mm-hmm. but I'm sure through experience, you've begun to kind of highlight or, or identify and rectify these situations much quicker when you know, a kind of alarm bell goes off when you see X amount of factors lining up and going, okay, no, this is, this is where we opt out. This is where we, we opt in and so forth. Yeah. If I see someone who just, you know, they're, you can read their body language. Sometimes they're tough and they'll say, no, I feel good. But if they're saying it, uh, while they're, you know, slouched and, and just <laughs> kind of barely shuffling their feet, getting by, and that becomes a trend for, for a period of time, you know, they may need to just come in and, and do a warm up, take a movement through, through full range of motion that they're able to do, uh, get a little blood flow, mobility work, and really don't tax the nervous system any further. Um, let them, let them walk away and come back to fight another day. So yeah, communication, reading body language. Um, I do make a lot of those calls just based on what I'm, what I'm seeing. A lot of times I'll kind of perch up in the press box at practice and just watch from from afar, where I can see kind of all the event groups and dial in on a few certain 
certain groups and other times I'll just kind of walk, walk through, um, practice and just mingle with them and, and get a feel for, mm-hmm. for how they're feeling. And that lets you have a conversation where they may have something that they won't come just tell you, but you can kind of figure it out by mm. being present and willing to talk that there might be something you have to accommodate a little bit. I don't know how you would potentially put that on a whiteboard in a gym, in a college facility, <laughs> but I have a feeling that it would be a welcome change from what I have seen in the past. And um, I think it, it definitely shows that, you know, I, I everyone, like just, just even the mindset that the athlete would resist you on, I guess you trying to give them not a way out, but a, a, option to recover and mm-hmm. so that you will perform better and that you're being thoughtful in that um it's kind of like showing how popular the hard ass blue collar mentality uh, within the weight room has become in, in a weird way and uh, it's not necessarily always endorsed just by strength coaches i'm not saying that at all but i will say that i've seen my fair share of it within the weight room and i suppose sure. it's nice to hear not that I would have expected you otherwise, but I think that's the beauty about track and field in general is that you have to think so holistically mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. You being a track athlete has probably taught, been the first um, kind of evidence of that, but that it's just like you realize pretty quickly that mentality just isn't going to do you any favors. Like it's. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, one of the one of the barriers to to really creating the environment and cultivating the culture that you want as a team is uh, developing the relationships with the athlete so that they trust you and they buy into what you're getting them to do. You get a lot less pushback that way, and uh, and you know I, I do have high expectations. I expect people to want to well, even if they don't want to to come in and and listen and and get the work done. But there's also there's room for uh, modification and adaptation to changing circumstances. And they, I, I tell them every year, the goal is to set you up so that we improve your performance. If I improve all your maxes and we lose <laughs> because everybody's broken, then I might have a good case for how I can make people stronger. But I don't have a good case for why I'm a good strength coach for your sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, high expectations, but I... Uh, a lot of adapting on the fly to changing circumstances that you can't always predict. It's sure. like I seen on LinkedIn earlier. Someone said the surgery was successful, but the patient died. Yeah, and, um, it's <laughs> terrible, but it, and bleak. Well, that, but it, I think in the specifically in the strength and conditioning realm, it's hard for strength coaches to really define what value they bring to the table, or at least the magnitude of it. And so, um, you know, when you when you do a good job your team wins everybody sets prs um it's it's easier to see how maybe the training that they did in their sport their you know their sport specific training contributed to that it's often hard to really uh quantify what role you had as the strength coach in creating that and i think one of the avenues that strength coaches go to try to you know, in a concrete way, prove their value when they don't have another avenue to do it is by boosting numbers. And, you know, those those are good training goals. And it might mean that you're effective at, at teaching those movements and training those movements. But that's not the be all end all for a successful season. And so, you know, honestly, I don't have a great answer for proving value other than 
um, look at the relationships that we've built, look, look at, you know, our performances continue to improve, but I, I, you know, it, sometimes it is hard to concretely show that because they did X in the weight room, they did Y on the track. Sure. Um, but the last thing I want to do is, is I kind of boost numbers, not artificially, but kind of an artificial ego boost um, to try to prove something that that uh, really isn't there. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So my, my final question in the, in all of this, because I think it's a beautiful way to wrap it up if, and, and it might be overly simplistic and not the sexiest answer, but what <laughs> would your advice be to the SNC coach out there who is on a track team and wants to prove themselves? Like we've probably talked about what the go-tos are in drips and drabs within this, but just to just kind of like wrap it up, like what would you recommend that an SNC coach does in order to, really not inhibit the performance but basically elevate the performance of their athletes and that might be true direct methods might be indirect yeah um, as we spoke about in the beginning uh one of them is going to be um you know we do want we have a trajectory that we want to be trending which is in, uh, improve technique increase load and speed that's kind mm -hmm. of the it's kind of the trajectory that we want for at least the majority of the fall. Uh, and so within those, within that uh, context, justify those methods to the coaches that you're working with. If you can get the coaches to buy in, um, then at least you, you might not get pushback from them. The next step is to get the athletes to buy in. And so uh, I think one of the, one of the crucial things is explaining ahead of time that trajectory, you know, making under, helping them to understand that your goal as the strength coach is to improve their performance in the sport. We're creating a a broad support structure um, as far as strength and power goes in order to support that work on the track. So get ahead of it ahead of time. Don't keep your your program a mystery. Ex justify why you want to be doing these things to the coaches. Try your best to to get them on board with it. And then develop the relationships with the athletes, and maybe say, "Hey, remember, you know, we, we, uh, you know, set PRs in in December, and now here we are in in January, and we're setting PRs on the track. You know, there might be a correlation there. The the athletes might you might get better buy-in when they start to create that link between what they did in the weight room and how it helped them uh, do the work on the track to get the performances that they got. So, get ahead of it, justify it, and and honestly, uh, not every situation is is a good one as far as uh expectations from coaches i'm really lucky here that the, at least on the men's side uh they were my coaches in college so i've had relationships with them for a long time and then after i started with them on the women's side they kind of they saw what we were doing and and kind of invited me uh into <laughs> into their realm so i've had good relationships with them and and you know i converse with them uh, as often as I can about, you know, what's going on in the track and what we're doing in the weight room, but not every scenario is like that. So even if you try to get ahead of it, you try to establish those relationships and communicate, get the athletes and the coaches to buy in. Um, at the end of the day, there are coaches who just don't buy into that philosophy and, and you might have to make a decision if you want to stay in that environment 
it's going to be an uphill battle trying to change the expectations and a different environment might be a better option as far as trying to meld your philosophy with the team that you're working with. Mm. Uh, I heard a strength coach say this a few years ago, you know, don't chase jobs, chase situations. Um, and oftentimes the strength coach is a part of that environment, that situation, but sometimes they can't change it. And if that's, that creates problems, then you might need to, <laughs> unfortunately, either uh, accommodate or, or uh, continue the search. Mm. It kind of goes back to what we were saying offline with just like maybe a reluctancy to get involved in collegiate track and field coaching in general is because you're, you're, you're chasing the situation that is right for you. And sometimes that's uh, not always possible when you're in your early kind of phases or even even doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be exempt from it as you go down you know go up the ladder either in fact it could be quite the opposite i've found many coaches to be very happy at their mid-tier school where they were very entrusted by the head coach and so forth and had like a good thing going there they could progressed a lot of athletes and the moment they went to you know the big the big time score it was like oh you know i got a job here now it's suddenly become a very different environment and very um, different experience for them to be a coach. And mm -hmm. so I guess, I guess that is, that's something worth noting as well. Um, but Matt, outstanding, you know, to, to sit here and listen to your wisdom on what you're bringing clearly to the University of Arkansas, which is a ton of value, but you're going to do the same for many of the listeners at home. For those who want to follow your social media platforms. I know you've posted on Instagram a fair bit about what you're doing with the collegiates and post collegiates over there. Um, and any other platforms that you have that you'd like the listeners to kind of keep up to date with what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, unfortunately it's going to be three different, uh, <laughs> three different names from the th different platforms, but, uh, on Instagram, I'm just track strength and I, I post a lot of, uh, uh, videos, not only of, of, you know, some of the pro athletes, uh, that I'm training, but, uh, I'll share videos of myself training. I think it's important for strength coaches to actually get kind of get in that realm and experience that. Um, so I, I post videos of myself training there. And then uh, I also share uh, articles that I write specifically about um, training and how it pertains to the track and field realm. So you can find me on Instagram at track strength. And then uh, the articles that I write, you can find it's it's linked to in my bio on Instagram, but it's also uh, art of training dot substack.com uh, where i'll post articles about about training there and then I'll, I'll also share those on my twitter which is uh at matt clarkinsaw <laughs> that's so, a very good one i like that yeah you can you can find it all on on one of those three platforms fabulous well that sounds like a really good reinforcement for much of what's been talked about here this evening and yeah again matt thank you so much for taking the time to to join me and and give the listeners uh, so much wisdom to kind of integrate into their own training situation so thank you yeah well i uh, i appreciate the invite and uh and also thank you for for making this uh this podcast i think it's uh really fun to listen to and and the sport of track and field uh needs more things like this so i uh, thank you for the work that you're doing cheers thank you and to the listeners at home hope you enjoyed this episode until next time take care Thanks again, guys, for taking the time to listen to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. 
I hope it was enjoyable and educational. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are a number of ways in which you can do so. You can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review. In addition, you can share it on social media with your followers and the community members in track and field so that they can benefit from listening to the great guests that we have on this show. Until next time, guys, good luck with your preparation and take care.